If you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, our text for this morning is from Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, right through to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3, 5 to 3, 17. In our last study of the book of Colossians two weeks ago, we looked at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16, verses 3 to chapter 4. Uh, verses 16, sorry, uh, of chapter 2 to chapter 3, verse 4. And in it we discovered that the Apostle Paul's threefold warning to the church at Colossae was this. And his primary purpose in writing to Colossians was to warn the church, warn the flock of certain false teachings and errors that have been creeping in and at the same time to reaffirm sound doctrine concerning the person, deity, and works of Jesus Christ. In the first part of his threefold warning in chapter 2, verse 16, we saw his caution against legalism. And we named that, watch out for legalism. Do not mix legalism with grace. The law was necessary in the Old Testament dispensation and it had to be followed by God's people as evidence of their faith in God. But it was never able to justify anyone because no one was ever able to keep it blamelessly. Now that Christ has come, he has fulfilled the law perfectly, has died has been buried and has risen and is now seated in heaven. He becomes the end of the law for each believer. Salvation is not a part, is not of works. It is not trying to keep certain aspects of the law plus faith in Christ. Salvation is all a gift of God. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9. So, says the apostle, don't let any man judge you in the keeping of these things. The second caution comes in verse 18. Watch out for false mysticism. Don't let anyone fool you or deceive you into worshiping through any other mediator than Christ Jesus himself. Don't worship angels or any other beings because that would be denying the headship of Christ and robbing him of his honor and his glory. 
And finally, the apostle cautions in verse 21 of chapter 2, watch out for carnal asceticism. Don't try to deprive your body of its needs or comforts in order to subdue the evil or sin nature and hope to become more holy. It just doesn't work that way. It is only as the believer yields himself or herself to the indwelling Christ that he is then able to live out the Christian life faithfully. So watch out for these three common errors. Then in the latter portion of this text, Colossians 3, 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul reminds the Colossians of their standing in Christ. They are risen with Christ since they have been buried with him. But not only that, they are also seated with him in heavenly places. That is their position in Christ. Then in verse 2, we looked at the perspective of the Christian. His affection should be heavenly bound or heavenward. And he should be preoccupied with the things of Christ. Then finally, in verse 4, we looked at the perfection of the Christian. Since Christ is in heaven, and we are risen with him, and he is in glory now, then we too, in God's eyes, are already seen as glorified. And someday when Christ shall appear, then we shall also appear with him in glory. And that is our wonderful standing in Christ. Now that the Apostle Paul has fully developed his doctrinal argument concerning the truths of Christ's deity, person, and works, and the believer standing in Christ and his union with him, the Apostle then proceeds to expound the truth of the believer's walk with the risen Savior. Thus, this particular passage deals with the practical aspects of Christian living. Since we, the true believers, are in Christ, identified by faith with him in his burial and resurrection, alive in him, we should therefore now be yielding to the Spirit of God which indwells us and allow the life of the risen Savior to be manifested in our daily walk with him. And so this next section, Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 to chapter 4 verse 6, deals primarily with the practical admonitions of the Christian walk, which I've entitled, A Call to Holiness. We see, therefore, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, the Apostle Paul admonishing or calling the Colossians to a life of Christ-likeness, a life of holiness and a life that will be honoring to the risen Savior, they are to do two things essentially. Number one, put away the old man. 
That is, they are to put away the deeds of the old sin nature and are not to give in to its constant demands anymore. And number two, they are to put on the new man. That is, they are to yield themselves over to the Spirit of Christ who lives in them so that his life might be made manifest in them. And so this brings us to the first point in our message, A Call to Holiness, which I've entitled Holiness in Relation to Ourselves. Put away the old man with his deeds. And what are the deeds of the old man? They are the deeds of the flesh which corrupt. Verse 5. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, many may argue today that some of these things are a natural part of us, that there is really nothing wrong with, number one, fornication, for instance, which involves premarital sex. But these are not debatable issues. God's word says they are sin. And that is why his wrath is coming on the children of disobedience. Verse 6. And so for the believer, these things must now be put away. Then in verses 8 and 9, we see the attitudes of the flesh which corrupt. Number one, anger. Number two, wrath. Number three, malice. Four, blasphemy. Five, filthy communication or speech. And six, lying. I would like for us to notice the first set of deeds and then their order of increasing corruption. Notice that they eventually lead to covetousness, which is equated with idolatry. That which caused God's judgment to fall on his chosen people. Covetousness becomes so consuming that it begins to steal the heart, the soul, the mind, and the strength of men. He cannot rest until he obtains the object of his covetousness. Many a good man has fallen and never recovered because of covetousness. Sometimes the object of covetousness can be a thing such as a material possession or a goal in life, or sometimes it may even be a person, another man, Another woman, Exodus twenty seventeen lists this as the tenth commandment: "Thou shalt not covet." Although there may be a whole slew of objects or possessions that one may covet, it is interesting to note that it is usually one of four mentioned in that very same commandment. Number one another man's house or wealth. 
Number two, another man's wife. Number three, another man's employees or employment. Or number four, another man's mode of transportation. If we were to stop and think, is that not today's major problem? Covetousness, subtly disguised as consumerism. A bigger, better house and property. Not because we need it, but because maybe so-and-so has one, and then it becomes more and more appealing as we dwell upon it. Another man's wife often becomes more and more appealing. Is that not the major snare and cause of the demise of the family today? Or keeping up with the Joneses. Mr. Jones just bought a new sports car. Wouldn't one just like that look good in my driveway, even if it means sacrificing my time, my family, my church, etc., to pay for it? Sound familiar? Or another man's employees or employment. Wouldn't it be nice to have a job like Mr. Smith, a big business like his, and people working for me, and so on. Yes, covetousness is frightening. God equates it with idolatry because it steals people from him. And judgment always comes because of idolatry. A covetous man or woman abandons all moral principles sooner or later. No more, says the Apostle, are you Colossians to give in to these things if ye be risen with Christ. Yield to him and allow him to live out the Christian life in you. Then in the second list, that is the list of attitudes which corrupt in verse 8, we see it begins with anger and ends with lying. Anger, if unchecked, will lead to wrath. Wrath will lead to malice. And once malice sets in, it must be acted out in some destructive way. Malice is a deliberate intention and plan to do something unlawful. Our courts today are backlogged with lawsuits trying to prove malice on the part of the accused party. Then there is the mention of filthy communication or speech. When a man's heart is filled with anger and wrath, his tongue reveals its true state. Whereas a heart that is gentle and at peace with God, it too will reflect its state by the speech that comes out. But the very last one of these is lying. Proverbs 6.16 says, These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that deviseth wicked imaginations. Feet that be swift in running to mischief 
a false witness that speaketh lies, and he that soweth discord among brethren. There is perhaps a no more destructive quality of the sinful man than his proneness to lying. Lying separates the best of friends when the truth is discovered. Lying has been another main cause of breakups in marriages because it leads to other sins and more cover-ups. Lying, even among God's people, is rampant today. It is so widespread because people have been deceived by the father of all lies that lying will cover up one's mistakes or sins or errors. And the basic reason for lying is still the same. Pride, self-pride. Pride is at the stake and lying seems to, at least for the time being, preserve that self-pride intact. But, says the Apostle Paul to the Colossians in verse 9, Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. If you are a new man in Christ, then you must now let the new man reign. For the old man belongs to this world and to the prince of this world, the devil. Remember what our Savior said about the devil when he confronted the Pharisees in John chapter 8, verses 42 to 47. If God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do ye not understand my speech, even because ye cannot hear my word? Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar, and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do ye not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. O oh, dearly beloved, we are to lie no more. Now we come to the second part or point in this message, holiness in relation to others. Since we have now put off the old man, it is now only reasonable to put on the new man, verse 10. We are to put on the new man after the image of God. But I would like for us to notice that the new man knows no boundaries, no barriers, as presented in verse 11. There are no national barriers because there is now no Jew and no Greek. There are no physical barriers because there is now no barbarian or Scythian. There are now no religious barriers because there is now 
no circumcision or uncircumcision. And there are now no social barriers because there are now no bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, once in Christ, all believers become one. They are all part of the same church or body of believers. They have the same Savior as their head, the same riches of grace available to them, the same position or standing in Christ. Thus, the same image of God is to be manifested in them. The same purpose and goal is to be theirs, to glorify the Savior by yielding to him and to his word and allowing Christ to live out his life in them. They are now therefore to manifest the deeds and the attitudes of the new man as the elect of God, holy and beloved. And so we come to the attitudes of the new man. In verses 12, 13, and 14, they are number one, mercy, Two, kindness. Three, humbleness of mind. Four, meekness. Five, long-suffering. Six, forbearing one another. Seven, forgiving one another. And eight, love. Again, I would like to draw our attention to the order of the attitudes of the new man. Love is the last that is mentioned. It is the glue which binds everything in perfect maturity. Love will bind all the other graces and virtues together and make the whole system complete. We are again reminded of the love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 that the most important Christian virtue is love, for it alone is the one that will last forever. One, it is love that binds us to the Savior and him to us. Romans 8, 35, 39 tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Number two, it is love for the Savior that brings us gently into obedience to his word. John 14, 21, 23 tells us, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. If a man love me, he will keep my, my words, 
and my Father will love him, and we will come on to him and make our abode with him. And number three, it is love for the Savior that humbles the self and brings forth true spiritual praise, worship, and adoration, as in the case of the woman who came to Simon the Pharisee's home where Jesus was. She poured her alabaster box of ointment on his feet and washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair in Luke 7, 36 to 48. And number four, it is love that binds those in Christ one to another in a union that can be had by no other means. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. And then later in 1 John 4, 7 to 11, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And five, finally, love then is the ultimate fruit of Christ's grace. It is the fruit that brings unity between Savior and his elect and unity between the brethren. Notice that the admonition to put on the new man or the command to put on the new man, including the virtues in 12, 13, 14, was active. Do this. But now here in verses 15 and 16, he is to be passive. He is to yield. He is to have a yielding spirit and let the peace of God rule in his heart. What peace? Why, it is that peace that has put to death the enemy of separation from God because of sin. It is that peace of knowing that in Christ, we are fully justified, fully accepted, fully glorified. It is that peace of knowing that nothing shall ever separate us from God again because all our sins have been forgiven once and for all through Christ Jesus. It is that peace of God that passeth all understanding and sh shall keep our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus, that no matter what our lot, he has taught us to say, it is well with my soul. 
Though there may be many rivers yet to cross in this life, and many trials may yet beset us, this one thing we are taught through the peace of God, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that peace of God should rule in our hearts. It should be the stilling comfort in an otherwise turbulent setting. It is that peace of God which is able to prevail and govern all our agitated emotions. We are called to this peace, says the Apostle, to peace with God as our privilege and our peace with our brethren as our duty. Being united in one body, we are called to be at peace with one another as the members are of the natural or physical body, all working harmoniously for the good of the whole body. And we are told to be thankful. The work of thanksgiving to God is so sweet and so pleasant that it will make us sweet and pleasant towards all the brethren. And then in verse 16, another passive commandment is given. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. The gospel of Christ is the word of Christ which has come to us. But that is not all. It must dwell in us. It must take up house in us. Many have the word of Christ dwelling in them, but it dwells in them poorly. It must have an influence in our lives. We must take our direction and instruction from it daily. It should be our portion of meat and strength and grace and comfort in due season. We must be familiar with it and know it for our good. We must not only hide it in our hearts to hide it there, but so that we sin not against the one who put it there. We must allow it to sway us for our own good. Then our soul shall prosper. And the evidence of the word of God dwelling in us richly will be manifested in our teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Verse 16. If this be the case, then, if the word of Christ really dwells in us richly, then we will notice three things. Number one, we will be a blessing and a comfort and a help to others. Number two, we will communicate it to others because it was not given to us alone to stagnate. And number three, if our lives are controlled by the word of Christ, then our lives and hearts will be filled with melody and singing. This is no more evident than the person who suddenly bursts out humming a hymn, driving a truck, singing heartily 
to the Lord. 4 reminds us, Nehemiah, chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so, in short, a word-filled Christian is a spirit-filled Christian. And finally, as we come to a close in this particular portion of text, we see in verse 17 that another aspect of putting on the new man involves total subjection to the Lord. Whatever the believer does, whether it be in speech or in deed, it is all to be done in the name of and to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we give thanks to God the Father. Thus, this new man, the Christian, is left on this earth to represent Christ, to do the will of the Lord and not just to please himself or herself. Do others see Christ in us as we interact with family, friends, neighbors, or strangers? I trust that it is so, otherwise we discredit or dishonor our Savior. And I see, as usual, our time is drawing to a close. And so before I step down from this platform, I must ask you all this solemn question. Are you saved? Are you a genuine Christian? So many today have a misconception of what a Christian is. Often when this question is asked, they will answer, Oh yes, I'm a Christian. I go to church regularly. I read my Bible daily. I sing in the choir. I'm a deacon in my church. I teach Sunday school. But dear friend, that is not what the Bible says makes a Christian. A Christian is a new creation. He or she is one who has the living God of the Bible indwelling them and living the life of Christ in them. And unless that soul has been born again by the Spirit of God, he is not a Christian. And yet it is so simple to become one. Even a little child can understand it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you haven't done so already, won't you do it now before you leave this place? Or those that will be listening through sermon audio, do it today while you still have the opportunity. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in his shed blood on Calvary's cross to wipe away all your sins and then rest in him. For then your salvation will be complete and your promise will be certain. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Let's pray. 
Father in heaven, we are so thankful to have been here this morning to remember our blessed Savior. We thank thee, Father, that thou hast made it so simple for a sinner to come to salvation, to realize that Christ has done the work. There is nothing that we in and of ourselves could ever do to save ourselves, but simply by faith, through grace, come to thee and trust in the work of Calvary's cross. For by grace are we saved through faith, not of works, lest any one of us should ever boast. We thank thee, Father, that thy word teaches that it is the gift of God. Part us now with thy blessings, we pray, and if the Lord be not come again by next uh, Sunday, gather us together again around his table so that we might continue to remember him and praise him for all that he has done in our place for us, which we could never have done ourselves. In his name we give thee thanks. Amen.